2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here as always with Aaron Lemmer and Evan Ratliff. Welcome back, guys. Hey guys, happy Good to 20, be here. 2013. Been a serious break. Yeah, I haven't done anything. <laughs> except, except book amazing guests for the next year in the Long Form Podcast. And who was our first guest in 2013, Aaron? Charles Duhigg of the New York Times. Um, people probably know him from some of the writing he's done about uh, Apple this year as part of the iEconomy series. This year out. being last year. This year being 2012. He has a book out called uh, The Power of Habit and uh, many other things, which we'll get into. Right on. Thanks, as always, to our sponsor. Tiny Letter. It's a simple yet profoundly powerful way to send an email newsletter. All right. Here's uh, Aaron and Charles. Hello and welcome. I am here with uh, Charles Duhigg. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You're exactly right. Um, of the New York Times. Uh, welcome, Charles. Thanks. I, I guess the place I kind of wanted to start off is um, I was reading your biography in uh, relation to this, and I know that you've been to, you went to business school, which is sort of a pattern I've noticed among a bunch of people who've been on the podcast is people who have a business or law degree actually being sort of a pathway here. So I'm kind of interested in what, what you were doing before you got a business degree and sort of how you, what, what your sequence was. Sure. And, and that's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, that doesn't totally surprise me that people, um, so I, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I graduated from Yale and then I, um, and then I, I moved to Cairo with my now wife and then girlfriend. And then I came back and I, to New Mexico and I actually started a company. What, what were you doing in Cairo? I was teaching journalism and she was teaching um, biology. So and you went you went straight from the college newsroom to teaching journalism yeah. internationally. Yeah. Wow. That that actually seems like I, I would read a I would read a story about that in its own. It was right? great. It was yeah. great. I loved living in Egypt. Yeah. But but then I came back. So, so the, the way I got into journalism is I came back and I actually came moved back to New Mexico where I was at that point intending to spend the rest of my life. Um, and I started a company. We would build medical education programs. So we'd go to universities and say, I think you need a physician assistant campus. Yeah. And you need, and we'll build it for you in Albuquerque. And then we'll split revenues with you. And I did it with my father, who um, is not super into the details of business. <laughs> so, so like we like mortgaged the family house. He's a lawyer. And, yeah. And, and we mortgaged our family house and like used that to build campuses. Who, whose idea was this? Yours it, or his? It was kind of his. I mean, basically, like both of us were clueless enough and we got a little bit lucky. Yeah. And started this company that ended up filling a niche very, very well. Um, and so, so I did that for a couple of years. And then I decided that, like, I didn't really enjoy the activity very much. It was successful, but I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. And I decided to go back to business school. Mm -hmm. um, my, girl, my then girlfriend, now wife, was living in Berkeley and she was getting a. A PhD, and, and I decided to go to business school, and so I, I applied to Harvard, and I got into Harvard to HBS. 
And halfway through HPS, and HPS uh, is a great, if anyone, it, th this is a long windup to say, if anyone is thinking of getting a graduate degree and they want to be a journalist, I think law and business degrees are great, great degrees. Because first of all, you have a network that you can draw on, which is fairly unique within a newsroom. But second of all, you actually learn essentially the vocabulary of a world that where the vocabulary is the most important entry ticket, right? Mm -hmm. That's true of, of law, certainly, because there's just a lot of phrases and mm -hmm. concepts that you need to understand to talk with other lawyers. It's equally true of business, and it's not phrases or concepts. It's usually sort of a, a confidence about business ideas that seem very cowing to people who don't understand those ideas. But once you understand them, you understand that the person you're talking to probably only knows 1% more than you do about what they're talking about. And I think that gives you an ability to be a much better investigative reporter. So you entered as a uh, already a seasoned entrepreneur. Um, seasoned is a strong word. But um, <laughs> at that point, did you think, I mean, were you thinking when you entered, I'm going to go off and, and start more businesses? Yeah, I was. So what happened is it, business school is two years long and you have a summer in the middle and you're supposed to intern at a place that you hopefully get a job at. And so I interned um, for a private equity company. Um, back in New Mexico, because at that point I was still thinking about moving back to New Mexico, building this company into something bigger, maybe going into politics, mm -hmm. kind of being a public servant. And um, and what I would do is, in private equity, most of what you do when you're a grunt is you build spreadsheets. So you come in and they give you 15 deals and you build spreadsheets to figure out if any of them are worth doing. And what I would do is I'd come in and I'd sit down on my computer and I'd put on my headphones and I would put on This American Life. And I had this rule, I'd be like, okay, I can listen to this one This American Life today while I'm doing these spreadsheets. Were you like listening back into the archive of This yeah, American yeah, Life? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember there was a period of time um, right when I got out of college, I um, was working for the city uh, city of Oakland. Do, like, it was like a tobacco study, and I was doing like uh, data manual, manual data entry, and I got a torrent that was the entire This American Life run till date. And I was listening. I was like, I'm going to listen to it all from one forward. And some of the early ones are like, Rough. Rough. <laughs> right, right, right. When I when I was like trying to learn how to like basically yeah. like the, the voice of the show. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So were you, I mean, were you thinking I'd like to do this immediately or? No. I mean, I think that what happened was that over the course of the summer, I basically realized that like the best part of my day was listening to This American Life. Mm -hmm. um, and that the, and that the, and I also realized this other thing, which is that in business, to do business well, what you do is you learn how to do one thing better and better and better. Mm -hmm. And then and then you do that one thing. And journalism is kind of the exact opposite, where in journalism, to do really well at it, you learn to do something different every single story, right? You're, right. you're learning each time. Or at least hopefully you're learning. So yeah. Huge fun. yeah. And it's, this was like a huge crisis of like in my life, right? right. Like, am I going to go into like business and politics or am I going to go into journalism? Yeah. And I basically just decided, and it took a long time to decide, but I decided that I just wanted to I wanted to do something that was interesting every day because the problem is that if you go into business and politics and you lose, you still have to live that life. And what I realized was that like, I felt like I could be fascinated every day. Dude, trying to figure out how to tell stories the right way mm -hmm. is such an interesting and complex question to me. Like how to tell stories in a way that makes the reader desperate to find out what the end of the story is. And and if you do it right, that changes their life, right? That actually like is life changing. Yeah. That seems like a question that could that could 
consume me for the rest of my life. And how were you confident at that point that you would be able to tell stories like that? I mean, what what were you sort of drawing on? For I mean, with this business degree, I assume you felt like if you wanted to say go into private equity, there would be a job for you. What what sort of what what did you feel like was going to happen if you went into journalism? I I had no idea. I just thought it would be fun. I mean, it, basically, I have this theory which I think is is right, and which I haven't always lived by, but I. I hope that my kids do, which is that you should go into everything assuming that you are going to be as successful as you can conceive of, because that, that ultimately ends up being true, right? As long if you have the ability to work hard and I knew I could work hard at that point, I knew I could work a hundred hours a week. And if you're smart and I knew that like life had sent me signals that like I was smart enough to figure stuff out. If those two things are true, then you should assume that over time, you are going to be as as successful as you hope you will be. And so then the question becomes, okay, assuming that that the best case eventually becomes true, mm-hmm. what is the choice that I want to make where I will be happiest once I am successful? Because once you are successful, it doesn't life actually gets harder in many ways once you're successful. And number two, how, how am I going to be happiest on the path to success, right? Because if I'm eventually going to become a U.S. senator or become a best-selling writer, it might take 10 to 15 years. And so right. which of those paths is that 10 to 15 years going to be happy? And then once I actually get that position, once I hit that point, which of them is going to be more – is going to make me happier? And has that earned out for you, that idea, um, now that you – I mean, you have a best-selling book and uh, you're you know working at the Times, which is sort of at the top of the pyramid. Have, have you felt that way as you've – come up? Yeah, I have. I have. I mean, I think that like, I think if I really believed that philosophy 15 years ago, there's a chance I might have gone into politics. Because basically the reason I didn't go into politics and I sort of shied away from that life was I had seen a very close friend run a couple of times and lose. And I thought to myself, that just seems awful. I don't want to live in Albuquerque, New Mexico and have a job that's unrewarding and run for office and lose and not have anything to show for it. Now, that being said, when I went into journalism, what I have found is that, A, I love the job. I really deeply believe in the values of the job and the actual day-to-day activity of the job. And I have found that success is this very interesting thing where you ha- it, like I think that you can believe as long as you work at it and you're willing to make the commitment as many years as it takes that you will be as ex- successful as you want to be. But that being successful means that you actually, you you have to work more. That like the, 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 the reward of success is you get to do what you want to do all the time and you have to do it all the time. Like mm-hmm. you don't, you don't, you don't get to relax. You have to actually be more tense. And the last year, you know, in the last year, the power of habit was, I was really lucky that it was a big bestseller. Um, I worked on the series at the times called the I economy where we've been investigating Apple, which definitely got a lot of attention. Definitely want to get to that, but yeah. And, and I would say the last year has, I feel very fortunate and I feel kind of even guilty saying this last year has been the hardest year of my life because I've literally just, because I've been working all the, all the time and because every day I feel like I'm missing opportunities. So let's spin the clock backwards here too. So you, you finished business school and then what was, what was your first gig as a professional writer? I got an internship at the, at the Washington post. Um, you're not supposed to be able to get an internship if you're out of school, but I just emailed and harassed them. Um, and, and this is actually for anyone who's like, like in journalism school is thinking about it. This is the best advice I can give you about getting jobs in journalism. 
The nice thing about journalism is the way that you get the job is the same way you do the job, which is that you essentially just hustle your way into it. Yeah. So like there is no there there is no drawback in being as aggressive as possible and trying to get a job because what you're proving to the editor is I will be this aggressive getting stories. How did you how did you develop that? I mean, you, uh, it strikes me I was I read through a lot of your work. A lot of your stories have dozens and dozens of sources in them. How did you how did you develop that aggression? Uh, I think just doing it. Yeah. Like I mean basically like Yeah, I mean that's a great like like the Apple series, you know, like we probably we probably called 4 or 500 people to yeah. get two dozen sources. How and do you know when it's enough? I mean, when you hit 300, what said like maybe there's gold in the next 100? Uh, you just keep, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, basically when you have enough to like make the story work, mm -hmm. right? Like, like that aggressiveness, I, cause I talk to a lot of young journalists, particularly for women, I believe this is true. And for men, like as long as you're polite and as long as you smile and you signal to the person that you're intelligent, you can't, you can't take enough of their time, right? Like you, until they kick you out the door, you should be pressing and asking questions and trying to get more. And that's true for getting a job, right? Like, like at the Washington Post, I applied for the internship program and I wasn't qualified. I wasn't eligible for the internship program because it's not for current. It's not for people who just graduated. It's not for business school students. Right. And I just, I got a train ticket. I went down there. I introduced myself. I just kept on pushing it. And as long as you're polite and you're not pushy, you can be pushy. And was that a, I mean, that's a real ego check, um, you know, coming out of Harvard Business School, oh easily God. probably a six-figure job waiting for you. Um, I guess it pay, I don't know if it's a paid internship it's or not. It's a paid internship. We won't throw not. Washington right. Post under the bus, but, um, you know, that's not, that's not an easy decision to make, particularly deeper into your 20s, probably. Right. No, it was not. I actually lived in my, in my in-law's basement. And the worst part about it is I didn't get the job. Like the whole point of doing the Washington Post internship is that yeah. you're supposed to like get an offer of a job. Yeah. I was one of the people who was not offered a job at the end of the internship. Ouch. Was, yeah. How long were you an intern for? For the, the summer, for like summer. three and a half months or something like wow. that. Wow. And like half the interns got job offers and I did not. Do you print, do you like have colleagues at the, the Post now who you, who you point this out to? I, I, there are other people at the time. I've often said that you could staff an incredible newsroom with the people that the Washington Post did not hire, and the New York Times has done exactly that. So at the point when you had been an intern for three months, were living in your in-law's basement, and oh you God, did not get awful. offered the job, it was what terrible. happened? It was, it, it was <laughs> awful. It was terrible. So, so and like, yeah, it was... You must have had it, because you just told me this year was the hardest year of your life, and that was a kind of rough you year had... Too. <laughs> that was a kind of rough year, too. I mean, we didn't have any kids at that point, like... I didn't really have any savings. And so yeah. it's like, there's this huge freedom that comes from being like not having any savings or not having any kids. I mean, you don't have anything to lose, right? It's not yeah. like I, I knew I could eat ramen. That worked out pretty well for me. So my wife um, had gotten accepted. She left Berkeley and got accepted into the Stanford PhD program and she was moving to California. And so I went to um, the LA times and I asked, or I tried to figure out what openings the LA times had. And they had an opening on the outdoors section, which is this brand new section they were starting. And I just like, I applied to all the newspapers in, in California and a couple of them were nice enough to invite me in for interviews. But like, obviously I wanted to be at the LA times cause it was the biggest paper. And I just like, I think I remember they asked me to do a story to kind of audition me. And I drove seven hours to go report the story at, um, uh, Yosemite. And then I brought it back and they were like, this isn't really what we had in mind. And I was like, okay. 
and I drove another seven hours and wrote an entirely like I wrote another story totally like unrelated to the first. And like basically I was just saying like I will literally do anything to get this job. And I got the job. I was an outdoors writer for two years. Were you, do you were you an outdoorsman to No, no, <laughs> dude. I like I hate the outdoors. <laughs> but I was able to like write these kind of interesting like pieces that were surprising because they were about the outdoors, but they weren't really about the outdoors. Um, and then I went to the business desk and I covered the music industry and I don't like music. Like I don't like the music industry. I don't like music. I know I don't listen to music, but again, really? similarly, <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah. I just, I never grew up around music. And so, but similarly, like I was able to like just devour, I mean, and own the beat. And, um, and then I, I flew out to New York, um, for a story and I'd emailed ahead of time everyone I knew at the New York Times and asked them, you know, can I meet with you? And Larry Ingrassia, the business editor, said, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and meet with you. And I think he just thought it was going to be a blow-off thing. And they had this opening for a telecom position that a friend of mine had, had told me about. And so I went in and I said, you know, I want to apply for the telecom job. We talked about telecom. I knew nothing about telecom, but I sort of read clips on the plane. What do you know about? Nothing. <laughs> I know nothing about telecom. But, um, but then Larry Ingrassia said, so if you could have any beat what, at the New York Times, what would it be? And I kind of knew that this, because this is an inevitable question, right? Yeah. So, and I said, if I could cover anything, I would cover the insurance industry. And I would cover the insurance industry like it was like this passionate, passionate story. The same way this guy, David K. Johnson, had covered taxes. Because everyone owns insurance and no one ever thinks about it. And there's people's lives at risk. And there's companies that want to essentially extort you for your premiums. And the reason I said that is because I knew that no one had ever said that to Larry Ingrassia. No one ever says, my passion is to cover the insurance industry. Right. And the number one thing you want to do when you're writing a story or when you're applying for a job or doing anything else is you want to be surprising. People love surprise. That is how we stay interested because something surprises us. This is something that comes up like... You know, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been sort of a, a, a spate of features where people like three magazines do the exact same story now, and there's hurt feelings, and there's ruffled feathers, and it's like, yeah, like, if you do that thing that was like the big news story, you know, the uh, the, the zoo, the guy who, who had the zoo loose, right. someone else has got that story, like... Not so much with the insurance industry. Exactly. exactly. And, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the big story, right? Like Michael Lewis covered the financial meltdown and yep. did it amazingly. Sean Flynn wrote about the, the tsunami yep. and wrote like the most amazing piece about the tsunami. But Mike, when Michael Lewis did the financial meltdown, I think the first piece, I, I may be wrong about that, I read was the, his Greece piece where it like starts and he's like in a monastery in Greece. It has like, it's completely disconnected from right. anything you know about that right. story. It's surprising, right? And yeah. Sean Flynn, when he wrote about the tsunami, wrote about a guy who his house washed away and he was on the roof, right? Like this yep. is for three days. This is, I mean, I think that the value of surprise, basically there's two rules in narrative journalism. The first rule is that if you start a story, people will want to know how it ends, even if it's a dumb story. Yep. So just start the story. And number two is people love, people stay interested because of surprises. Um, and so, so when I said that to Larry and Gracia, I think it was surprising and he told me to write two memos, one on telecom and one on the insurance industry and how I would cover those industry, those beats. And I sent him, each of them were like 12 or 15 page memos with story ideas. 
And I got hired, and I've written one insurance story since I got hired in zero telecom stories. Well, but you did write, and I, I was thinking that this is uh, sort of where it connected. You did write the story about the elder sort of predation and the elderly in which insurance does play a pretty big role Absolutely, in that yeah. story. The first series I did at the Times was Golden Opportunities, and, and the first big story in that was about long-term care insurance. So. What I mean, where where did that where did that series start for you? And I mean, is it unusual for someone to come sort of fresh off fresh off the proverbial boat and do a series like that? You know, the truth of the matter is that a lot of reporters don't like doing series. Really? Yeah, huh. and they don't. And this is um, not a lot. I'd say some because if you're doing an investigative piece, you're not in the newspaper very often. And there's a lot of pressure on an investigative piece if you've spent six months on it, that it better be worth six months worth of work, right? right. Like you got it, you, you really, there's something very like comforting about being in the newspaper every week. Like you can look back at your, ed- and you can say to your editors, look at what I did. Like my job here makes sense. I'm, I'm earning my keep. I made this decision pretty early on that I wanted to write stories where they would be significant a year later or five years later instead of just a week later because I had done that work when I was covering the music industry and it was very frustrating to me. The problem is that you really have to you have to have this incredible patience um, to be able to work a story for six months and this confidence that like it'll be worth six months worth of work. So how how long in the making was that Golden Opportunity series? I spent I spent a year doing that series, and we and we got ten pieces in the paper that I wrote. And are those coming out sort of as you go? Yeah, staggered. Yeah, yeah. So I would write them, and then it would come out, and then I'd go on to the next. Because I was curious, and, and this applies to the I Economy series. It looks like to me, from, as an outsider, like a lot of the research is sort of overlapping. Like research for one story could end up in another. The story is sort of overlap. How do you how do you how do you cut something like that into discrete chunks, and how do you decide what goes where? Um, so iEconomy is a good example because we started the reporting for that in 2011. Mm-hmm. And and I basically spent six or seven months reporting the first two stories, which ran in January of 2012. And those were the two stories that, that probably got the most attention, the one of them being in China and about working conditions in Chinese factories. Is, um, that, is that the piece about sort of why Apple could never be, could not be built in the U.S.? So, the, yeah, that was the first piece. That was is, the first one. Why, yeah. Apple, why Apple was manufacturing in China. Yeah. And then the second one, which appeared just four days later, was about what conditions were like inside those factories right, in China. Right, right. Um, I mean, the, the most important thing in writing any kind of story, but particularly investigative story, is that you decide what your, what your, your narrative line is and what yep. belongs in the story and what doesn't. Um, and, and frankly, saying no to some types of reporting is incredibly important, right? Because stories that don't work are stories who try and tell too much or stories where the reporter says, if one story is good, five stories must be better. Five narratives must be better. One narrative is always better than five narratives. And so in the, in the I economy, what we would usually do is like two, maybe two and a half narratives per story because we would have these section breaks. So it would sort of work. Um, but that's a huge part of it is like, is that I collect the reporting. I can sort of know what the big headlines are, like conditions are bad or a- Apple will never manufacture in, in the U S not because of prices, but because of supply chains. Mm-hmm. And then it's a matter of finding the narrative, choosing the narrative and the character. And then they are going to tell me what belongs in that story and what doesn't. 
When were you were you interested in Apple? I mean, what 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 sort of started the, that story for you? Well, I think what started is, and again, this started with an idea that Larry Ingrassia had, which his basic question was, why aren't we building cell phones in the United States? Like, if the, if cell phones are the new PCs, why aren't they being built here? What does it say about American manufacturing? And of course, the the most important cell phone at that point was the iPhone, and. And as I spent more and more time thinking about it and researching and reporting, what I realized is that Apple is this iconic company. We, we don't have a lot of very sophisticated conversations about capitalism in America anymore. Oh, and, none, really. Right, in large part because we don't have a, a counter to capitalism. And so, so Apple is seen not only as the, the capitalist apogee that everyone wants to aspire to, but in some respects the moral the moral height, right? That like yep. they are they they are the, they are the company that embodies the wonderfulness of America. Yeah, and also uh, sort of creative freedom. I mean, it's sort of a triad that uh, uncompromising uh, creative integrity. Also. Exactly, exactly. And yet, but the truth of the matter is that what's lost in that is that they are a company, and companies and capitalism work by certain rules, and those rules are inherently amoral. Right? Tools are amoral. And I really wanted to illustrate that that every company lives by makes choices that ha, that create winners and losers, and that ignoring those losers just because they happen to exist in China or they happen to exist in states where we don't see them or they happen to be disconnected, like their schools that are getting defunded because Apple doesn't pay a very high tax rate, that does not mean that those losers don't exist, and that a sophisticated conversation of capitalism embodies all of those components. And Apple is the perfect example of this, right? Because everyone knows Apple. Everyone carries an Apple product in their pocket right. or they use it. Everyone loves Apple. Right. We can't say, you, you know, these guys are running a lead paint factory that's pouring into the ocean. Exactly. This is something you want. No one exactly. wants lead paint. Everyone wants an iPhone. No one would ever say, I wish that Apple was, didn't exist, right? No one would ever say, I wish that Apple had been created in Europe. Sure. And you don't even have many people. I mean, I feel like the last time there was a serious conversation about this was uh, Nike factory conditions. And Nike, also a desirable brand, but you did have people saying, I'm never going to wear Nikes again, you know, that blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've never even heard enough of an outcry. I've never heard an outcry about Apple that anyone has said, I'm not going to buy Apple products because of this stuff. I get I get emails from people who say that, but I think you're right. I think yeah. in general. And and the truth of the matter is that Apple is a deeply more, is filled with pe people who are deeply moral, right? Like right. We, some of the biggest, some of the biggest kind of like, um, I think moral turmoil over the stories occurred within Apple, among Apple employees who worked for Apple for the same reason that most people love Apple, right? right? Because they wanted to work for the greatest company on earth that was making the world a better place. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that, um, you know, a colleague of mine, David Barso, did a piece, uh, did a series about Walmart this year, about bribery. And he, This was the one in the Mexican. The Mexican Walmart. bribery yep. case, yeah. yeah. And he and I have talked about it. And one of the things he said is that he wanted to find, he wanted to show, find a company where he could show that in some respects, companies have become more powerful than governments. And I think that similarly, the iEconomy series and a lot of the work that we do at the New York Times is to try and sophisticate and provide contours for what business is because business it has moral components that unfortunately had, used to be part of the conversation and has essentially been lost at this point. And Apple is a great example of that in, in large part because it's the most valuable company in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, certainly the, it's certainly the right time to think about capitalism and Apple. Right. Um, 
there's sort of a there's a sort of a second government involved in the story, which is the Chinese government and 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 Chinese people and Chinese workers. How did is this the first story that you've reported that had sort of a heavy international component like that? Yeah, yeah, it was. And and one of the things I'm really proud about about this series is that every story that I wrote was co bylined, right? Um, which is how I'll, I'll do series from now on. How how does that how does that work? Like, do you do you pick your uh, your A team or how how do you? Well, so so. In the Times, the Times is kind of a unique place in that it's almost as if the reporters are in charge, and then the report the editors ask us what we'd like to do, and we tell them. Um, it's overemphasizing a little bit because the editors are critical in helping us decide. But but one of the things there is an internal marketplace, and reporters are kind of free to pursue the stories that they think are most important, which is one of the reasons why I think the Times is so good. And so what I would do is I would reach out to my colleagues, for instance, in China, and say, "Look, I'm working on this thing." Would you consider doing it with me? Because I'm not. I need someone who knows China to do this reporting, and and what would oftentimes happen is I would do a lot of reporting, and they would do a lot of reporting, and then they would send me these very long feeds, and I would take all of the feeds and sort of work it into a narrative where we could find the one one character to follow. And in the in one of the first Apple stories, we followed this kid who ended up dying and his face was kind of blown off by this explosion. And, you know, we probably looked at 30 or 40 candidates for that narrative um, until we decided on this one individual and followed his story. But a lot of it is, you know, we have translators out in the field getting their feeds. Um, the Times is enormously collaborative. And, and one of the things that's really important to me is to reward that collaboration. Every, like, bylines and, you know, when we win prizes, the prize money is distributed among everyone. Um, and, and for a lot of those relations, I mean, are you start, is, is the story the start of your relationship with these, these reporters in China? Or do you, have you worked with them previously? No, no. Yeah. Like David Barboza and Keith Bradshaw, who are the two Chinese yeah. reporters who yeah. I worked with um, for the China stuff, I, I've, I've never met Keith in person. I've only wow. talked to him on the phone. David, I just sort of met twice in New York. No, I mean, usually the first thing that happens, like the way I meet them is I call, I email them and then say, look, we're thinking about this. Yeah. I think it'd be a big, exciting both story. both work at the same place. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, to be honest, it, very often I also reach out to reporters at other publications. Uh -huh. um, we hire... We hire stringers from other publications. Um, I have friends at other publications, and I'll oftentimes ask them for advice or help. Yeah. Um, I think one nice thing is with the media sphere, the way that it is right now, we, uh, you, know, you know, we're playing on different teams, but we're all playing in the same game, and we right. kind of recognize that. And, I mean, that, that must be a very deeply trusting relationship. Like, if, if, if you have someone in China, then they're saying, this is how things are in China. This is, you know, this is how a factory works in China. You're basically blindly trusting that judgment. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. And they're blindly trusting me. I right. mean, they're blindly trusting me to put the story together in a way that, that maintains the integrity of the facts. I mean, and we do enormous fact-checking. I mean, right. the, 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 the backstop in this is that before a story runs, we, we call them, in the New York Times, we call the big stories heaves because you have to heave it onto the page because it's so long. Yeah. Um, so with a heave, and, and heaves are essentially almost all I do at this point, I'll literally take the entire story and I'll turn every single sentence into a question and I'll email that to my sources to say, what are we getting wrong? So, so the, the way that you backstop trusting yourself and trusting your colleagues is anyone who might complain after the story is, is published, you've given them the chance to complain before the story is published. We don't, we never show a story to, to anyone before it's published, but for all intents and purposes, they can, 
we have shown them every single every fact, fact in the story, yeah. or not even just facts, I guess, every statement in the story. Exactly. exactly. So when, when I, if I were to pick apart, say, the, the story you did with um, Barboza, um, line by line, like how does that collaboration work? Who, whose prose is it? Like who? How, how in does that, that case, it's 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 my prose. Okay. Because I, and this is um and 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 David's a wonderful writer, so this mm-hmm. is not like sure, but the um. I believe very strongly that a story needs one writer, mm-hmm. one author, because you want this in this voice that continues throughout. And so, so when I'm working on a story, if I'm the lead byline on it, I take all the feeds and I rewrite all of it. There's not one sentence that is not sort of my sentence. Although a lot of, I mean, obviously a lot of the sentences started with David, right? And and so. And and then and then I send it to David and he'll suggest changes. So it becomes much more collaborative. How, how long, let, let's say, between that that first piece coming out? How how long had you been working on it when that fir- the first heave hit the print? Those ones were big ones, yeah. and we probably spent about six or seven months before it was in the paper. And did you know like this date first first heave needs to hit, or were you did you have sort of flexibility to figure out how much you needed? Um, uh, we were actually going to run it before in 2011, before mm-hmm. the new year. Yeah. And then, and then the paper got too filled and we said, well, let's just do them together in a package. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with scheduling for the paper. Like I don't make the decision when it runs, the top editors do. Um, so it'll oftentimes be standing by and ready and then they'll say, okay, next Sunday it's going. And so, I mean, I, I would guess that the I economy series as a whole is probably, over 50,000 words at this point. It's pretty long, or maybe not quite that long. Well, let's see, pretty, there's nine pieces, probably yeah. about 4,000 words yeah, per piece. 36, 36, yeah, 36,000. Yeah, so, 40,000. But I'm guessing even at 36 or 40,000 words that there's a lot that that's left out. I mean, with the amount of research you're doing, you're really heavily editing. Are you, are you ever tempted? I mean, I bring this up because the New York Times just put out the story Snowfall, which is like massive multimedia extravaganza do you ever have an urge to expand on this stuff be it in a book or kindle single form or no and i'll tell you why it's because having bought and i haven't bought the snowfall single so i don't i I know there's some additional material in there which might be fantastic but having bought a few singles that are expansions of magazine pieces Mm -hmm. um the stuff that gets cut out gets cut out for a reason, right? Like, like the discipline of space is always a good discipline, and and if it's on the cutting room floor, if if it deserves to be read, it shouldn't be on the cutting room floor. Like, I would rather I would rather spend that time to go write something new. You know, it's one of the things I I think Michael Lewis is the best nonfiction writer working right now, and one of the things that's really interesting is that I don't know I, I read a paraphrase of him saying this, so. It, might yep. not be true, but that he something like this, <laughs> he, right? He essentially said that every single thing, the only thing that he puts in the magazine or in one of his pieces is something that he thinks will entertain the reader and draw them along. And by definition, the stuff that's on the cutting room floor is stuff that does not do that. And, and that is very important. I mean, that's in the, in the newspaper business is a little bit different. We can't be quite that, um, we have to give the facts more prominence because that's that's the nature of newspapers. Yep. But I essentially completely agree with his philosophy. And and as a result, if it ends up on the cutting room floor, there's usually a reason why. Interesting. So when you were starting off, you know, you're you're a fairly accomplished reporter now or a very accomplished reporter. But at a certain point you were doing this for the first time. Did you look to people like Lewis in terms of how to diagram a story like 
Well, you know, the first time you published, say, an over 2,000 word story, how did, how did you put that together? Yeah, I mean, I, would, I read those guys. I still read those guys obsessively, yeah. and I still yeah. think obsessively. Like, I try and figure out, like, how a Michael Lewis piece works. Or yeah. um, there was a piece this weekend about George Saunders in the New York yeah, Times Yeah, fantastic. Magazine. Great uh, piece, Joel right? LaBelle. Yeah. Who's going to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Oh, great. And Joel's fantastic. Max is going to be uh, interviewing him live in uh, Pittsburgh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. The um, University of Pittsburgh. If you look at the structure of that piece, it's a very complicated structure. It's actually a structure that you can't really diagram out, which means that it probably started as a diagrammable structure, and then Joel got deeper and deeper and deeper into thinking about the structure of it. Yeah. So they're really good pieces. You can't actually learn how they work. But you can try and figure out how they work, and they teach you some experiments of your own. And my advice to like new, new people who are writing narrative is, just find one narrative and follow it because the narrative will always show you what the next step is. As you get more experienced, you can play with narrative and you can you can play against the structure. But the first big piece I did was about um, this weird uh, Philip Morris event in southern Utah where they bring all these people from overseas and they have like a cowboy week. And they wouldn't give me any access, so I had to like rent a jeep and follow them. Like, I, and we destroyed one of the jeeps, and like one of the dudes like brandished a gun and was like, "What are you doing on my land?" And so, so the whole story was like the story was of me, and in the story, I called myself the reporter, me trying to track these guys down, and I just told it sequentially. I just told the narrative of what happened. And like my favorite quote about the New Yorker is that there's an editor there who says, "Write the story however you want. When you give it to me, I'm going to restructure it chronologically." I've I've heard that about New Yorker too, and it's it's amazing because you never notice that when you're reading the New Yorker. Like I was like, no, and then and then your your mind just like scans thousands of stories, and you're like, wow, I can't think of a example of a nonlinear New Yorker story. And the reason the reason why is because once you choose a simple structure and once you master that. You can begin fighting against the structure. That's where you get deep into structure. That's where you get to a place where, where you understand the connections between these two paragraphs that, that the reader doesn't have to understand to reap the reward of. But you, to do that, you need to have a superstructure that you can work within. And that's what chronology is. Find the beginning of the narrative and just tell it straight. And then you're going to be at a place where you can begin playing against that. Was that something you struggled with um, when you were, you know, starting out writing or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think everyone does, right? Yeah. Like, and I look at some of my early pieces where like I tried to do that or I tried to do something clever and they just don't work. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're, they're good. They're, it, it, but it's clearly a young writer. It, yeah. You, you know, the, one of the best books on this is, is Jim Stewart's um, Follow the Story about how to structure. And he says that he, when he was working in the New York, he, he used to figure out what the question was at the beginning of his reporting process. He'd write it down on a note card and put it up on his wall. Because halfway through the reporting process, he would forget what question he's trying to answer. And he could look at it and say, oh, that's what I'm trying to answer. That's, that's how I – yeah, you get inundated with the reporting and you lose your training of thought. The nice thing is that as you become more experienced, that stops. Um, but I think every young reporter goes through a process of learning how to keep their eye on the goal. And it's painful. It's something I've noticed. I mean, I was reading um, – I was watching last night a documentary about uh, Pixar – and uh, they talk about how they develop the story, their Pixar stories. And uh, basically, every sing- if, if a narrative can't be reduced to a single sentence, the whole like arc of the narrative, it gets thrown out. So uh, Finding Nemo is the story of a um, good father who's not acting like a good father because he's controlled by fear. It's the whole story. That's great. And the whole movie has to be that roller coaster. Um, 
And I, and I think it's, it's not dissimilar with journalism, but I do think when you ask a question like, what does it mean to be um, moral in capitalism? That's a uh, very interesting question, but it's something that's very hard to answer even at 4,000 words. Right. Did, I mean, do you ever feel like you're biting off something that can't be chewed up in a newspaper article? No, because because the question because I always look for the smaller question, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I mean, I think that the discipline of the Pixar thing is fantastic, right? Because it always reminds you, you know, Chuck Close, the guy who does the the paintings where he does the little squares, talks about how forcing himself into arbitrary rules allows for this amazing creativity because you know the boundaries that you're right. pushing against. And I think the exact same thing is true in stories. So like when it comes down to the Apple piece, like the in China, I think the question, we didn't really have a question as much of a statement as, for the first one it was, why, isn't, why aren't iPhones made in the United States? And for the second story it was, what is it like where the iPhones are made and why? Right, like, and we knew that it was bad because we had done enough reporting that we knew it was, there were harsh working conditions. But more importantly, why? Why does it have to be that way? And that, and and every part of the story comes back to answering that question. Um, you, I, I don't know if you're intending to continue to report on, on technology, but but certainly um, that was one of the more notable technology stories, you know, of the last year. How do you situate yourselves? I feel like both in business and technology reporting, there's this like like far like on one side, there's like the gadget blog, like. Uh, you know, 19 posts a day, what's Samsung up to yesterday world. Um, and then, you know, in business, there's also a sort of a, uh, there's a, there's a, a more boostery side and there's a more critical side. Right. Um, and Apple is really interesting because I think Apple is engages people fully on both sides of that. How, how do you relate to that sort of other side of technology reporting? And do you interact with, you know, the gizmodos of the world, are, are they on your radar? Does it interest you? Um, I mean, I go to them to like find out what new cell phone I should buy, but the yeah. answer is no. Like, okay. like what, what we, I don't actually think about this series as like a technology series. Uh-huh. I don't even really think of it. At, I mean, it is a business series because it's about a company and it's yep. about, but, but fundamentally when I'm considering a series and we look at a lot of candidates before we decide to throw a year or a year and a half or two years into one thing, the number one question I'm asking is, is do I believe this is something that will engage at least a million people for each story? And we would have to talk to audiences that don't not necessarily come to the times. I mean, right. um, and, and that's, that's important to me because, because time is the ultimate commodity and I want to spend it on things that, that I think have more meaningfulness. Right. Um, so, so I don't, I don't really um, interact much with the tech the the tech sort of journalism community you know yeah. i the, the the series i did before this one and before i wrote the book was about um water pollution right and and it got a it got a number of, of very kind um science and journalism awards or environmental journalism awards and each time i'd go to the ceremony i would say this is kind of weird because i'm not a science journalist or an environmental journalist you know i'm an investigative journalist yeah. um but i think good investigative journalism fits into these other worlds. It comes in as sort of a disruptive force a little bit. Well, and it, it also sort of exposes some, like sort of a giant gaping hole in the report. I mean, I, I've re- I actually do obsessively read all of these websites, um, for better or for worse, um, partially because, you know, we sell an iPad app. It's, you know, Apple's fate is my own fate. I'm, I'm, on, right. I'm on the ship now. Um, but 
the chances of seeing an investigative piece on most technology-oriented websites are, you know, and it's getting better, but it's not a focus. Right. And investigative, I mean, investigative journalism is hard. It takes a long time and it's expensive. Like, I don't, I don't think we, I don't know that like the audience for Gizmodo, which, which seems really well written. I really yeah. enjoy. Yeah. The I Verge is another really okay, good one. Okay. Yeah. 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 I don't know those audiences are coming to them for investigative pieces. Right. right. Like, like That's I'm fair. sure that they like them when they see them, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, they're coming to find out like what's going on at CES, yeah. or, like, which cell phone I should buy. Um, well, it's one of the things that to me makes the New York times a really interesting organization is that you can have the bits blog that has some of that stuff going on. And you know, the I economy could be, in the sidebar that you know we that you can be talking about a new gadget and simultaneously talking about how it was made and possibly a non-flattering light in the same publication. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean that's the thing is it's a great time to be in journalism right now because so much of what used to be the boring part of journalism yeah. is becoming commoditized, right? Like like it, newspapers don't send 10 reporters to the same event anymore. They send one wire reporter, which means that those other nine guys, well, maybe there's not nine jobs anymore, but maybe there's seven of them for guys or gals. Yeah. They can go and do something interesting and new and different. Yeah. And that's the best part of being a journalist is doing something that's interesting and unexpected. And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Charles Duhigg for coming in on short notice. Uh, thanks to Lauren Kirchner for editing this episode. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Uh, you can go to longform.org to check out our best of 2012. If you missed it, we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.